join us for the TVO Telethon, March 23rd and 24th, and donate early for a chance at great prizes. Visit telethon.tvo.org for more information. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. This week on the pod, Ottawa's police chief is the first professional casualty of the Capital City Convoy Crisis, as both the City Council and Police Services Board melt down. We've got fresh polling data on what people think of the Freedom Convoy, and we speak with Ontario's Financial Accountability Officer, Peter Weltman, on the province's energy and electricity subsidies. It's Tuesday, February 22nd, 2022, so let's get to it. JMM things in Ottawa are very much in flux at the moment. We're not going to go into too much detail on attempts to break up the convoy here, given that by the time people listen to this, events will no doubt have moved on. But we can say that things politically in Ottawa have been quite extraordinary over the past week. The police chief, Peter Slowly, resigned or was fired, who knows, and that was followed up with one of the most rancorous city council meetings ever and a resignation from the police services board. What is going on? This is all fallout from the uh, massive unhappiness, to put it mildly, uh, with the fact that the convoy was allowed to occupy uh, downtown Ottawa for more than three weeks. lots of tears and recriminations. Uh, Frankly, as somebody who remembers a lot of crazy city council meetings during uh, the premier's late brother's tenure at Toronto City Hall, it felt kind of familiar along those lines. Uh, The only black city councillor on the police service board resigned his position uh, from the service board in the middle of the meeting uh, because of the decision to remove the head of the police services board. Uh, They almost voted out another councillor, another police services board uh, member resigned at the end of the meeting, you know, nerves are frayed, uh, people are clearly on edge, t- tempers are running hot. Um, and then you've got uh, Mayor Jim Watson, uh, who we've discussed before, is is not seeking re-election uh, in this fall's municipal elections. Uh, a, a guy, I think, has a reputation as being a pretty um, bland, maybe, <laughs> sometimes boring even, uh, you know, as angry as I think anybody in politics has ever seen him. And not far from the convoys occupying membership, uh, MPs debated in the House of Commons on whether to invoke the Emergencies Act. While the PM kicked off the debate, it was the public safety minister, Marco Mendicino, who is the MP from Eglinton Lawrence, just across the road, actually, from TVO, who gave uh, the major speech for the government. What was the gist of his arguments? You know, the minister started off by saying, you know, what the convoy wasn't. He said that, you know, protests might have been rooted in uh, anti-vax sentiment, anti-mandate sentiment, even anti-liberal sentiment. Uh, but in the minister's judgment, this is no longer uh, a reasonable you know, political debate about you know, personal freedoms. Uh, the protest was depriving hundreds of thousands of others uh, their freedom to live in a, a peaceful and orderly society. And what did Mendicino have to say about whether the government wanted to bring in the Emergencies Act, which of course hasn't ever been invoked in the 35 years since it's been on the books? Uh, In fact, the minister said, you know, neither he nor the prime minister wanted to invoke the act, uh, that this was a last resort. Uh, Authorities have tried every other option possible. uh, But the fact is, three weeks later, the convoy was still there. Uh, Local police and businesses were being disrupted to the tune of uh, hundreds of millions of dollars, according to uh, uh, the class action lawsuit that has been launched. uh, And it simply had to end. Now, Candace Bergen, who is the interim conservative leader, leader of the opposition in the House of Commons, 
Uh, she called the invocation of the act disappointing. She blamed Prime Minister Trudeau for failing to de-escalate the situation, and in her view, the threshold to invoke the Emergencies Act had not been met. Uh, the Tories thus indicating they were going to vote against it. That's what they said last Thursday. Why don't you pick up the story from there? Right. Uh, Bergen called it a, a sledgehammer approach. Uh, she said history would be unkind to uh, New Democrats and the Bloc Québécois for supporting the invocation of this act. Uh, you know, she, she reiterated that the trucks should move or be moved, which was uh, a bit of a different position uh, than the one she was taking uh, not that long ago. Uh, she has, uh, you know, supported the protesters and posed with pictures, uh, posed in pictures, I should say, uh, with some of them, uh, you know, at the beginning of the the protests now several weeks ago. Now, I know people are always curious to find out, you know, what does the average Canadian think about this? What do we all think about this whole Freedom Convoy thing? And frankly, normally we don't spend a lot of time on this podcast going over polls because, as I've said a million times, ad nauseum, they're a good snapshot of what people thought yesterday. They don't tell you what people are going to think tomorrow. However, comma, having said all that, Greg Lyle is the head of the Innovative Research Group. He has done some very interesting polling out on three of the main institutions that have been responsible for various aspects of the trucker protest. Greg asked, do you think the response from the police or the province or the feds has been mostly appropriate or mostly inappropriate? And we're going to go through some of the numbers here and see what he has found. On the issue of the Ottawa police and how well they've done, they had a plus eight favorability rating. In other words, 8% more people thought they have been conducting themselves appropriately rather than inappropriately. What about the provincial government? Well, pretty much an even split, 50-50 in some respects. Here's where the numbers get intriguing. The federal government, they were 22% underwater, meaning 22% more people thought they have been acting inappropriately than appropriately. And that's before the Emergencies Act was invoked. 22% underwater. It's always difficult to draw inferences from these numbers, JMM, which is why I'm going to ask you to draw some inferences from these numbers. Go ahead, please. <laughs> Well, you know, I think what is clear from these numbers is that for whatever reason, uh, the public has put the, the lion's share of responsibility for this crisis uh, on the feds. Uh, and, uh, you know, they have borne the, the brunt of the unfavorable public reaction to it. Now, as somebody who <laughs> wrote at TVO.org that I think actually uh, Doug Ford and the provincial government have a lot of responsibility here, too. Uh, I happen to disagree with that view, but... You know, this could help explain why the feds uh, decided to invoke the Emergencies Act, uh, you know, aside from the, the objective facts that things really had gone on for uh, a very long time, uh, they may have also inferred from uh, their own polling uh, that, uh, you know, a much tougher response to the, the Freedom Convoy was required. Now, let's pick up on the question that, again, a lot of Canadians are asking these days, which is, should the prime minister at some point have, have met with the protesters? So Greg Lyle did some polling on that, and he found that the Trudeau government's decision not to meet with the protesters was actually very well received by the public. He asked this question, if the government agrees to meet with the protesters, are they signaling that anyone can block downtown spaces to get what they want? So that was the question surveyed, and 48% of those surveyed agreed with that. Yes, that you can get away with anything if the, if, if, uh, the Prime Minister meets with you, it proves you can get away with anything. Only 28% disagreed with it. So that's a rating of plus 20. Government's got to be happy with that, I'm sure. 
One would imagine. I mean, I don't think you need a, a, a poll to look good saying you're not going to negotiate with uh, what the prime minister has referred to as hostage takers. Uh, that said, uh, again, I'm sure that uh, if they didn't have this poll result, they've had uh, similar polling as well. And they know that uh, they can be pretty comfortable taking this position. And let's do another series of numbers here. Greg Lyle asked, I think any disruption caused by these protests is necessary, given the way governments have restricted our freedoms during COVID-19. So that's the point that has been put out there. And obviously, they're trying to gauge how much sympathy there is for the truckers. And overwhelmingly, there is not much. 70% of self-identified liberals say no, this disruption was not necessary. 76% of New Democrats say not necessary. 46% of unaligned people say not necessary. That compares to just 19% who say it was necessary. That's unaligned people. And what about conservatives? Well, you would expect them, more, you know, if you support the conservatives, you would expect more people to be supporting the truckers. Closer numbers to be sure, but still, the biggest chunk of conservative supporters oppose the truckers' methods. That according to Greg Lau's polling. 46% say not appropriate tactics or methods. Only 40% say the protests are necessary. That's among conservatives. And John Michael, why don't you keep going? You've got a deeper dive on some of the tactic numbers. Right. Uh, on the issue of uh, creating noise in downtown areas late into the evening and early into the morning, that is opposed by 74% to 17% who, who support those kinds of uh, tactics. On blockading roads, it's 71-17. On blocking border crossings, it's 69-18. You know, these are just <laughs> massive numbers opposing these kinds of tactics. Um, for what it's worth, uh, all the polls are essentially saying the same thing. I, I've seen similar numbers from a bunch of different pollsters in the last few days. You know, the convoy has some support, but the vast majority of Canadians uh, oppose both what they're doing and how they're doing it. And as you indicated, I, I really want to hammer this point home. Even among conservatives, uh, the, the majority or at least plurality position is let's say, skepticism at best. <laughs> right. All right, let's take a look. That's obviously what's going on outside the House of Commons. Inside the House of Commons, perhaps not surprisingly, some of the rhetoric has gone over the top, and the Prime Minister opened himself up to some criticism on that when he referred to Conservative MPs snuggling up to neo-Nazi sympathizers among the protesters. Uh, take us through that. What happened there? The problem uh, in this particular instance, uh, I mean, nobody denies that there have been swastikas, at least in some uh, instances at these protests. Uh, it's also well established that uh, there are white supremacists uh, among at least some of the protesters. The problem was that uh, Trudeau was responding to a question about the convoy from Thornhill MP Melissa Lantzman. Uh, Lantzman is Jewish. Uh, the riding she represents has one of the highest percentages of Jewish people uh, in the country. And the notion that uh, Lantzman herself could be accused of currying favor with Nazi sympathizers is, well, many people considered it very offensive. Right. Okay, let's leave that story there. As I say, events have no doubt progressed in the time that we've recorded this to the time that people are listening to it. And obviously, we'll have more on our columns on TVO.org, the website, in our weekly newsletter, which we'll plug at the end in case people want to subscribe. And of course, uh, on the agenda on TVO during the course of the week. Uh, it's the day after Family Day. And while for most people, that just means it's the end of a long weekend. For MPPs, that means 
a return to the legislature for the first time since Christmas. So, John Michael, do we have any sense of what's on everyone's agenda in the coming weeks? Well, our listeners uh, may be sick of hearing about it, uh, but there's no avoiding it. We are unofficially going to be very much in election season. Uh, So that is going to be the lens through which everything gets viewed. I would expect uh, question periods to be uh, even spicier than they already were. Um, But there's also going to be the work of government, necessary things that have to happen, uh, whether there's an election or not. And, you know, the biggest item in any spring setting of the legislature is, of course, the budget. Yeah. Now, the budget's always, uh, I guess, March or April. Uh, These days, we almost always get at least some pre-announcements of what's coming in next year's spending. Uh, The education minister had an announcement last week. What did he have to say? Uh, the government announced an increase in the, the main funding stream for Ontario's public schools. That is what's called the Grant for Student Needs. Uh, basically, this is a, a per-student grant that all school boards in Ontario get. Uh, people may remember uh, back in ye olden days, uh, Ontario schools were primarily funded by property taxes. That has not been the case for many, many years now. Uh, it primarily comes from the province. Uh, so the government is announcing nearly 3% uh, of an increase in the Grant for Student Needs needs. Uh, In a normal year, that would be uh, actually a pretty substantial increase. But uh, of course, in the current economic environment, that's actually uh, less than the rate of inflation. Uh, In any case, uh, the increase uh, in the the, what they call the GSN uh, is all part of a a bigger package of spending the government announced to try and help students recover uh, some of the learning time they have lost from school interruptions due to COVID-19. It includes things like, you know, increased tutoring opportunities, summer school online learning, that kind of thing. Anything else coming down the pipe that we know about now? One thing that is almost certainly coming, and it will either be a big piece of legislation on its own, or it might potentially be folded into the budget itself, uh, that will be the the, the government's next housing plan. Uh, This government has made a bunch of changes to laws and regulations over the years to try and get more homes built to try and lower the cost of housing, particularly in the GTA, though these days it's really an Ontario-wide problem. Uh, Late last year, they struck a panel of experts to recommend next steps, and that panel's recommendations came out uh, a few weeks ago now. A lot of those recommendations would actually mark um, very dramatic, if not radical, changes from the status quo in Ontario. Uh, So I'm kind of skeptical about how many of them will actually make it into a bill in the legislature, especially in an election year. Uh, But one way or another, that is probably coming in March, maybe early April. Uh, Of course, the legislature's work is going to stop uh, on or around May 4th when the House is dissolved and the election campaign formally begins. Can I rely on my favorite housing policy nerd to keep us uh, up to date on that file? Uh, you will have to try and stop me, sir. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. All right, let's do our COVID-19 check-in. We got the strongest signal yet from the Ontario government last week that this Omicron wave of COVID-19 may be coming to an end. What did Premier Ford have to say? Uh, the Premier was in Hamilton visiting uh, ArcelorMittal, uh, DeFasco, the steel manufacturer there, Uh during a Q&A with reporters uh, after the, the government's main announcement of the day, uh, Premier Ford dropped that he was, quote, so done with COVID-19 and uh, reiterated that vaccine passports are coming to an end in Ontario on, on March 1st. The vaccine certificates will no longer be necessary, uh, at least as far as provincial law goes. It's still up in the air about local matters. Um Reopenings are happening, right? Uh, On the 17th, uh, a bunch of capacity limits lifted. We discussed that in last week's podcast. Uh, And I note that uh, the Maple Leafs uh, last Thursday were finally able to fill the Scotiabank Arena to 50% capacity. (laughs) 
here, here. Now, you're, you've raised hockey. Let the record show here you raised hockey. So I'm <laughs> going to pick up that baton or that hockey stick, maybe I should say. We want to congratulate the women's hockey team at the Winter Olympics in Beijing, who at 1.30 in the morning, Eastern time, last Thursday morning, recaptured the gold medal from the U.S. that they had lost at the previous Olympic Games four years ago. I got to tell you, I stayed up for it. I'm betting you didn't. Am I, I right? I did not. My apologies to the women's team, I, I, but I did not. <laughs> the, the, I'm sure they know you're not a sports fan like I am, so you, you, you have some special dispensation there. I didn't stay there. up for any men's games either. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got to tell you, I've, I've watched a lot of hockey in my time, and this was one of the most intense games I've ever seen. And you got to feel just fabulous for these exceptional athletes who have in so many ways put their lives on hold for the past four years as they have just so singularly focused on getting back on the top of that podium, which they did. What a team. What a game. Bravo. Uh, no power failure among our Team Canada women. And speaking of which, <laughs> let's talk energy and electricity policy, shall we? Oh, groan. Uh, do, you, do, do you really like my... Uh, Entirely unscripted and unrehearsed segue there, Steve. (laughs) (laughs) You are the king of the moving right alongs, JMM. That was well done. Okay. All right, then. Let's get serious and let's talk energy. Last week, the province's Financial Accountability Office released a report on Ontario's energy and electricity subsidy programs, which we thought merited a deeper dive. So let's do that now. People may not know, but the province of Ontario subsidizes through the Treasury the cost of electricity to the tune of billions of dollars every year. Are we getting value for those subsidies? Do those subsidies encourage us to be energy hogs rather than conserve electricity more intelligently? We wanted to put those questions to Peter Weltman, Ontario's Financial Accountability Officer, and he joins us now from the nation's capital. Peter, it's good to see you again. Welcome back. Well, thanks very much for having me back. Uh, Peter, the current government promised during the 2018 election that they would reduce people's hydro bills by 12%. Will the current policies in Ontario do that? No. Simple answer, they will not reduce electricity bills at all and not by 12%. So what will they do? The electricity programs in place right now will cap the rate of increase of hydro bills to 2% per year going forward. The way the programs are designed, they're about a 20-year horizon on, on the biggest ones. Are you allowed to therefore conclude that this was a promise made and not kept? Well, I think that would be best left to others who are, you know, who are making those judgments and who are going to all hopefully go and vote in, in June at the next election. That, that's, I think, where that, uh, where that determination needs to be made. Okay, I know, Peter, that the government's position is that our policies are better than the previous Liberal government's so-called Fair Hydro Plan, which the current government inherited, and therefore they will say we are keeping the promise. Are they able to say that? Well, of course they're able to say that. They can, I won't go there with, you know, with my free, my, uh, it's a free country speech, but certainly they can say that. I mean, in fact, when we were looking at the report and we were back and forth with the ministry to understand, you know, you know, because they say we're going to meet our 12, the 12% commitment and they, and they said, well, how, and we said, well, how are you going to do that? And they told us, well, we're going to compare it to what the programs would have done to electricity bills before this government changed them. So really, if we look back, the hydro bills would have been more expensive under the previous programs than they are post changes. 
Is it good public policy for taxpayers to subsidize uh, hydro ratepayers to the tune of $118 billion over 20 years? Well, that's a great question because there are – I will probably stay away from the word good, <laughs> but certainly there are some considerations, right? I mean, you know, really what we're doing here is – the few things have happened. So the Liberal government came in – or came in – the Liberal government put forward the Fair Hydro Plan. The idea was there was to try to take some of the volatility out of the hydro – of the electricity price increases for ratepayers. And also there was a program to try to – uh, the, in the Green Energy Act to try to incentivize industries, people to get into the renewables electricity business and provided subsidies to do that. And all of those subsidies and uh, price mitigation measures were paid for by ratepayers. And what this government has done has said, no, we're going to have taxpayers pay for those, not ratepayers. Both are legitimate policy choices, in my opinion. Um, and I think that's what distinguishes, right, between one government and the next is what is their sort of approach to doing policy. And this is clearly a, uh, a different approach. And I'll elaborate a little bit. So around the world, we've seen a lot of governments incentivize or provide incentives to folks to get into the renewables business. Um, and we still have a lot of those in place here in Ontario. We have 33,000 odd uh, contracts with people who might be generating electricity from solar panels that are on their roofs. And we pay them extra to take their surplus and feed it into the grid. That's why they're called feed-in tariffs, where the tariffs are higher than typically what uh, what they're being, what they're what they're costing. So that's a way of subsidizing those folks. And I guess there's a policy choice to be made: should ratepayers be doing that, or should taxpayers be doing that? On the electricity price mitigation piece, you know, there's a very sound public policy argument to say ratepayers should be doing that because they're the ones getting the benefit. So then there's you know, the whole public theory kind of thing saying, if you're going to provide a benefit today, that benefit should be paid for by those folks who are receiving the benefit, as opposed to necessarily borrowing the money, which is what we're doing now, to lay off that, that cost onto future taxpayers. Well, let's just really understand what's going on here. We, we have the current government of Ontario, which you estimate over the next 20 years will have to borrow $118 billion in order to subsidize, in order to make the cost that we currently pay of electricity cheaper. What if you got rid of, and I know you studied this, what if you got rid of all these subsidy programs and we actually paid the full freight of what it costs to use the electricity we're currently using? What would happen to our bills? The bills would be around 29% is the total price increase over the 20-year period. And the reason that comes about is because the previous, um, previous plan was going to repay, but it was, only, it was going to start forcing folks to repay their benefit sooner. So that's and, and what this, these new programs do is it doesn't require that at all. The taxpayer subsidizes it out 20 years. So 29% is the number that's in our report, um, and that would be the effect. So the other side, of course, is to say, well, how does that work with keeping industries or our, our electricity price, especially to industry, competitive with, with our neighbors? And that's an argument that, is often, that often gets trotted out, is if we have uh, if folks who are big consumers of electricity, certainly industry, uh, and they can get 
you know, electricity, and if it's a significant piece of their input costs and they can get that much cheaper at a neighboring state or province, then they might move to be able to do that. So that's always a consideration when you're doing uh, this sort of policymaking. So uh, Ontario has a program to subsidize hydro costs for people on low incomes. And, and one of the footnotes in your report is that that's actually not being used nearly as much as it could be. Uh, meanwhile, this sort of blanket low hydro costs that the, the current subsidies accomplish, uh, that benefit goes to everyone, uh, including people who make six-figure income, say. Uh, is that, <laughs> generally speaking, is, is that something people would say is good public policy? Well, I think, uh, I think what's important about this report is it illustrates that stuff. It puts it right out there. It says, here is the breakdown. Here is where the money goes. Is this where you want the money to go? So we did a report back in the fall that looked at uh, some of the key energy uh, and electricity subsidy programs and showed who was getting the benefit and from which program. And so what you see there is you see that there are, you know, there are nine of these programs. Now, a lot of them are designed to help folks uh, offset their electricity bills if they are low income, if they're living kind of in a rural or northern area, if they live on reserve. In those cases, the delivery charge for electricity is much higher than what you and I would pay living in a city. So there are programs specifically targeted to those folks to help bring their cost of electricity down to make it a little more comparable to what you'd pay in the city. And then, of course, the two big ones, right? The Ontario Electricity Rebate and the Renewable Cost Ship Program, which together account for roughly 60-odd, 70% of the total of that $118 billion going forward. Uh, and that subsidizes consumption. So... What we know by looking at the research is that as incomes grow, consumption grows too. People who have higher incomes tend to live in bigger homes. They tend to have more stuff that requires more electricity. So yes, in fact, these programs are incentivizing higher income folks, well, incentivizing everybody to consume more, but higher income folks get the biggest dollar benefit from it. Peter, because you've been on this podcast before, you well know that we understand that your job is to analyze the numbers and not necessarily opine um, ab about your political conclusions on them. And you know that John Michael and I try to ask questions to get you to do that very thing. Sure. So, <laughs> well, having absolutely. said all that, I'd do the same if I were you. <laughs> having said all that, I, mean, I have here in my hand my latest electricity bill from Toronto Hydro. And I, I own a Chevy Volt which means I plug it in every night, which, and it uses electricity. And I'm one of those uh, six-figure income earners that John Michael McGrath just mentioned. And I see here on my hydro bill that I get the Ontario electricity rebate to the tune of $8.56 every month. And, okay, Peter, here's where I'm going to do it. I'm going to come right at you and say, do you think it makes good public policy sense for a guy who's making six figures to be given any discount at all, let alone an $8.56. Now multiply that by how many millions of people across the province of Ontario. I assume at some point you're talking real money. Do you think that money could be used for more intelligent purposes than to give me a rebate on electricity bills I should be paying on my own? 
Well, you know, that's exactly why we do this stuff. And that's why we break it out that way. And if we look at the chart that's in that report I talked about, so we have roughly $637 million going to uh, high income households, incomes $151,000 and over. That's what we pay those folks to consume electricity uh, through those programs that I talked about. And the next one down, that we're paying, you know, we're paying them $528 million. Uh, and that's for an income level between $100,000 and $150,000. Is that good public policy? Um, I would argue there it's worth considering other uses for that money. Uh, definitely. And that's, you know, that to me is the beauty of this sort of report is it starts to prompt people to ask those sorts of questions. And my question is, what was the policy objective to subsidizing high-income folks to consume electricity. I'm trying to wrap my head around what could have been the public policy objective. I certainly get it at the lower income. I certainly get it if you have other programs that are targeting folks that are living in rural areas or whatever the case is. I can, you know, I may or not agree with it or just I do agree with it. That doesn't matter. But I understand, you know, logically why that makes sense. I don't understand why we are subsidizing folks to consume electricity at the high when when they're when they're earning at the higher income levels. Hey, John Michael, I think we actually got him to nudge a little further than he normally goes on this kind of thing. Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, Damn, there's my swear word. <laughs> uh, this report also, I mean. It does say near the end that it is possible that these programs could get even more expensive than the $100 billion plus that you and your team have already calculated. What kinds of things could drive those costs even higher? So some of the things that could drive it higher are uh, obviously changes in the cost of production of electricity, changes in the usage of electricity. Very, very sensitive to uh, – because when you're projecting anything out 20 years, even a couple of cents a kilowatt hour spread over millions and millions of users can make quite a difference. So what we've embedded in this and to you know best of our analysis, this includes – uh, all currently announced costs for nuclear refurb. And remember when you're doing a refurbishment on a nuclear plant, they're very, it's a lot of money, but that's amortized out over the life of the plant. So it's not all paid today. It's paid over 20 to 40 years, depending on the life extension of the plant. So if you've got a $20 billion refurb and you're amortizing it over 40 years, that's $500 million a year. You divide that by, let's just say, 10 million odd rate pairs. So, you know, you're talking 50 bucks on the bill. It's not big, big dollars, right? It's not significant. But if those refurb costs double, which can happen. We've seen that happen with nuclear refurb. Hopefully they don't. There might be the introduction of different generating. Right now, we have a bit of excess generating capacity. We sell some of that surplus off to other jurisdictions. Um, if we see a huge uptake in things like uh, more Chevy Volts on the road, like like Steve's, maybe he buys a second one or whatever the case is. But um, you could see a significant increased demand for electricity. Uh, you may have to start looking at adding new new generating capacity. Uh, you might, you know, find that cost of renewables isn't dropping the way you'd like it to. So there are a lot of factors at play that could really affect our our, our forecast. I've just got one more, and you know, since I started reporting at Queens Park, I think uh, there was a lot of. Um, uh, confusion because electricity costs are not always terribly transparent. Uh, they can be uh, quite opaque what goes in and what comes out. And, and I guess I'm wondering, is this current, um, are, are the current policies 
do they at least have the virtue of transparency? I mean, this is taxpayer dollars going towards a, a pretty clear uh, public policy goal, as opposed to burying tons of costs inside uh, somebody's hydro bill that they can't necessarily understand. Well, I think thanks to our report, I'll take a <laughs> few kudos for that. We've certainly added, I hope, some transparency around what all these programs are. I mean, we were asked to do this work almost three years ago now. That was the objective. So what the heck is going on with electricity? And can you tell Can you tell us? Can you tell me? That was the MPP. Can you break out everything going on? Tell me what it's going to cost. Tell me what you know, where these benefits are going. And that's what we've done. Um, so that makes it transparent. I think certainly from a, you know, ratepayer point of view to start to see that rebate show up on your bill. Um, you know, you, you're not, of course, seeing all of the other costs. They sort of get lumped into production, distribution, and then your rebate. So you're not understanding what the different costs are for the renewables. And that would become a very lengthy bill if you did that. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, right now, there's more transparency than there might have been. The thing that always boggles my mind, though, honestly, when I was in Ottawa before I took this job and there was this huge outcry about electricity and pricing and in Ontario, and we were looking at it at PBO and when we were doing some other work and we thought, you know, their, their, their costs, their, their, their electricity costs really aren't that out of whack with their neighbors and with their, uh, I said, if you compare to Quebec, of course they are because everybody's out of whack compared to Quebec. They have tons of cheap hydroelectric power, so it's not really a fair comparison. But clearly there was some issue. I mean, hydro rates were going up rapidly. People didn't really understand why. And I guess the government felt they needed to try to address it in some way, shape or form. And that's uh, and it's still an issue. Every time we do an electricity port, as I tell people, you know, people get a charge out of it. So (laughs) (laughs) groan. Well, one thing that is not in this most recent electricity subsidy report is a fact that I am going to put on the record right here. And that is apparently Peter Weltman and John Michael McGrath have the same birthday which happened uh, just a little more than a week ago. So happy birthday to both of you. Are you both the same age? No, I don't think so. <laughs> We're both younger than you, though, Steve. <laughs> yeah, that is true, unfortunately. <laughs> Touche. Okay, Peter Weltman, Financial Accountability Officer. Good of you to join us here on the On Poly Podcast. We're grateful for your time. Well, thanks for having me on. It was fun. You know, um, I guess I made a bit of an exception to my traditional rule of asking sort of neutral, lean, open-ended questions in that last interview, because I don't normally uh, weigh in on this kind of stuff. But uh, as you may have gleaned uh, from uh, the way I asked one of my questions there, I do think it's a little ridiculous that high-income people, uh, which I confess I am one of, um, are given a break on their electricity usage to the tune of $8.56 or whatever it is a month, um, I, I I don't need that break, and the notion that that is still in place, uh, depriving the Treasury of you know money it p- potentially could use for much wiser purposes, I don't get it, and I <laughs> I'm glad to see Peter Weltman doesn't get it either. You know, this is I guess the old joke, you know, a billion here, a billion there. Pretty soon you're talking real money. I mean, this mm-hmm. is billions of dollars every year going towards. Uh, the vast majority of this money is going towards people who don't need it, and um, by by any objective measure, you know it's it's going to people who who frankly don't need the help. Uh, meanwhile, the program that is targeted at people who most need the help is going undersubscribed. Um, you know, 
I understand why both this government and its predecessor and its predecessor and its predecessor have all gotten hung up on energy politics in Ontario. It's difficult. Um, but yeah, the, the current status quo doesn't make a lot of sense either. I think if there were a, a you know, disruptive populist government that wanted to, to find a campaign issue on which to run, you couldn't do a lot better then. Why are we subsidizing the electricity prices of and the, and the electricity uh, premiums of people who make six-figure incomes? Come on, people of Ontario, let's claw back that money that we're giving to them in this break that they don't need, and we'll put it towards the people who do need a break. Now, that seems like a tailor-made policy for a guy named Doug Ford, and why he's not running on it, maybe he will, but he sure hasn't done anything about it yet. Okay, I'm off my soapbox now, and let's conclude as we always do with our favorite quotes of the week, and we'll have that for you immediately after we ask you to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We love your feedback, good, bad, or indifferent. You can also shoot us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. We also, as always, remind you to read our weekly On Poly newsletter, which drops every Tuesday. You can subscribe to that at tvo.org slash onpoly-newsletter. I think we've got a nice one this week, actually. We're ignoring all of the Sturm und Drang that's out there right now. And because it's family day, we're going to focus on families. And there's a lot of second generation politicians in the legislature at Queen's Park. And we're going to just shine a little spotlight on what they do. Uh, Starting, of course, with the premier, who's a second generation politician. His dad was an MPP. Here now is my quote of the week. And we're going to go back to last week when Premier Ford was in Hamilton. There you go. I got my Hamilton reference in. At the ArcelorMittal DeFasco steel plant, he was asked about getting the province back to normal. I want to get these mandates moving, and we made some great announcements yesterday. On, in two days, we're, we're going to be going to 100% in restaurants. On March the 1st, we're just going to open things up, and thank God, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm no secret that, you know, with, with these uh, passports, Vax passports, I, I wasn't sold on them, but went along and we did what we had to do because the, the doctor said we need to do this. Doug Ford, still not a fan of vaccine passports, even though he did implement them. And my quote of the week comes from the Prime Minister speaking in the House of Commons on Thursday. On Monday, as we entered the third week of illegal blockades and occupations, the federal government invoked the Emergencies Act. We did it to protect families and small businesses, to protect jobs and the economy. We did it because the situation could not be dealt with under any other law in Canada. Mr. Speaker, we did it because that's what responsible leadership requires us to do. For the good of all Canadians, the illegal blockades and occupations have to stop and the borders have to remain open. That's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau leading off the debate on the motion to approve the Emergencies Act in the House of Commons on Thursday of last week. And that is this week's episode of the On Poly podcast, produced by Katie O'Connor, edited by Matthew O'Mara, production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hellowell. JMM, as my dad likes to say, actually, hang on a sec. My dad is here. My dad is here visiting. Larry Pakin, why don't you just say it? Stay positive, test negative. <laughs> That was, a little, that was a little surprise for you, John Michael. There you go. Oh, I like that. <laughs> now my dad's going to want to be a guest. <laughs> Stay safe, Steve. 